the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. To make his nation, God chose a hundred-year-old man and his barren wife, and gave them a son. To make his entrance into humanity, he chose a tiny, no-name town and a virgin's womb. In the book of Luke, Mary responds to this in song. She sings of a God of surprising reversals, using weak people to accomplish mighty things, filling the hungry while sending the rich away empty-handed, and calling a peasant girl blessed among women. The all-powerful King of Kings has come to us in the form of a helpless baby. Emmanuel, God with us, has drawn near. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard, O tidings of comfort and joy, Gloria in excelsis Deo. As you hear the songs of Christmas carols throughout the season, it's one of those things that can annoy you, But there can also be moments of just rapture and joy as you hear the version you remember growing up or the new version that's captured your attention. And you think about the words. You see, music is incredibly powerful. Throughout centuries, cultures everywhere have always bought into the power of music. It's one of the first things that happens when people settle together. It's the first art forms is song, music, instruments. It's incredibly powerful, I believe, because it's deeply spiritual. There's something in music that's hitting deeper in each of us. And you find that it's one of the primary mediums that God uses throughout the Bible to speak to and through his people. Israel had a history of songs. The first song was sung by Adam in the garden when he saw Eve, his wife, and he bursts into song. And many of the prophets from David through to Isaiah speak in songs. And the whole story of the nativity, the birth of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke, is surrounded by songs. We don't think about them that way because they're written as poetry, but they really are songs. And one of the more powerful songs was the Song of Mary, and I want to talk about that at the end of our time this morning. But the other one is one that we didn't read, and maybe you don't know as well. It's the Song of Zechariah. It's called the Benedictus in, an, in a liturgical setting out of the uh, blessing that begins the whole thing. Zechariah, you see, was the father of John the Baptist, the precursor to 
to Jesus. And Zechariah was filled by the power of the Spirit with a word of prophecy, and he ushered out this promise, this prophecy, in a song. And listen to his words. They're words that echo everything we've just read. From 2 Samuel's promise of a coming king, to Micah talking about a ruler coming out of the the family of Jesse and the house of David, even to the point of Isaiah and his promise of somebody who would come and establish God's reign. Zechariah sings, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty savior, born of the house of his servant David. Through his holy prophets, he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to set us free from the hands of our enemies. Zechariah is basically rehashing everything we just read. The promise to Abraham of a mighty nation. The promise to David of a son who would reign forever. The promise to Isaiah of God establishing his peace. A king, enemies being conquered, and a kingdom with God. This was the hope of first century Israel. Most of the people in in Zechariah's day, in leading up to the point of Jesus' birth, were looking for a coming king, a Messiah. The time when God would come and establish his reign. But what they were looking for is not actually what happened. And in order to understand why they maybe missed it a little bit, you have to understand how the ancient Near East worked. When they heard promises of a king and a kingdom, certain things came into their mind. And you have to understand that part of it was what they naturally valued in their culture in that day and age. You see, in that day and age, the value was placed in your name, your heritage, your ancestors, what clan or town you were from. So instead of asking, what do you do? They would say, whose son are you? And for sure, if God was going to come as a king, he would come with a mighty name. He would be one of these names that everyone recognized, a family heritage that was, was obvious. A second thing they valued in that culture was authority and rule. They wanted land and they wanted kingdoms and they wanted a king. And so they assumed that if God was going to come, he would fit their categories. A name that they recognized and a clear kingdom that they could enjoy. Oh, and all their enemies conquered. Now, to us today, that seems a bit odd. We we don't buy into the whole kings thing or kingdoms, and we feel a little bit squeamish about our enemies being conquered. We have our own set of values. We're modern individualists, right? And we live in a merit-based society. So we value achievement and success, not kingdoms and names. We value achievement and success, and we as Americans love winners. And I I remember looking back, if I think about my childhood growing up, it was a series of rooting for winners. Now, looking back on it now, I say, no, no, it wasn't that, but it, it actually was. And here's how it started. My very first jersey that I ever got was a Terry Bradshaw jersey for the Pittsburgh Steelers. It just so happened to be they were in their third and fourth Super Bowl years. I loved the Steelers then. And then somewhere about the mid-80s, the Steelers were terrible. And we lived here in D.C. and had ticket access to the Redskins, and the Redskins were really good. So all of a sudden, I was cheering for the Redskins way more than the Steelers. 
And of course, by the mid-90s, the Redskins decided to be terrible again, but the Steelers became good again. And since then, I've been a Steelers fan. We'll see if it ever changes. I don't actually suspect it will, because I'm not as worried about the Redskins ever being good again. I did the same thing in basketball. I was a Dr. J fan in the late 70s, a Magic Johnson fan in the early 80s, and then a Michael Jordan fan. We love winners because we are a success-based culture. And we do it even in our interpersonal relationships too. Who do you have the least patience with at work? It's somebody who is incompetent. They're not performing up to standards. And maybe that's the way it should be, but think about what's behind that with how we regard people. We want nothing to do with, we can't wait to get rid of somebody who's incompetent because performance matters. Achievement matters. When you're in middle school and high school, it's how you decide who you want to be friends with or not. You may not actually explicitly state this, but you know in your head you have your own set of characterizations of what a loser is. And when you see somebody who fits that, you want nothing to do with them. Our teams, our friends, who we value at work, success, achievement. And it's why we've developed a culture of fame, where political leaders, CEOs, people with actual talent, but maybe in certain areas that we wouldn't necessarily think of as really talented rock stars, athletes, people that TMZ highlights every day. These are people who are famous to us, and we want to be like them. They are successful. So if the Old Testament promises of a coming Messiah were written today, they maybe wouldn't use words like king and kingdom and enemies vanquished. They would use words that fit our understanding, and we would naturally assume that the Messiah to come was going to be some sort of great political leader with the charisma of a a Bill Clinton, and he would be fantastic with running an organization and a business like Bill Gates, and he would be incredibly talented like LeBron or Taylor Swift, and, and as famous as like Brangelina, and it would be all put together, and this would be Jesus. But of course, Jesus' kingship, his messiahship doesn't fit any culture's primary values. He doesn't fit ours, and he didn't fit theirs back then. And so even when Jesus came, the people in that day were longing for a king, a Messiah. They'd been longing for 2,000 years. These promises to Abraham, and then to David, and then to Micah, and then to Isaiah, and the rest of the prophets, and even in the words of the songs that Zechariah was singing. They were looking for God to come and finally fulfill his promises, to vanquish enemies, to establish a kingdom and a king. But they didn't see it coming. They kept looking for something. They were maybe looking for the wrong sort of thing. The answer to Israel's longings and waitings and hopes of a king were given to a a 15-year-old girl and a Middle Eastern handyman and the baby that was going to be born to them. The Lord comes to Mary, this teenage girl, and says, you're going to have a son. And the promise goes like this in verse 31 to 33 of Luke chapter 1. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and she'll call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
thrones and kingdoms. You know, thrones and kingdoms in that ancient world were about men and heritage. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, son of Jesse, son of David. But it's to a 15-year-old girl, maybe, that this message comes. You know what's amazing about the nativity story is that the primary actors are the sort of people that don't fit. It's shepherds who were disdained. It's a group of pagan astrologers who don't even believe in the Lord God. And it's women. Elizabeth and Mary. In that ancient world, women were not, not only not respected, they were not considered fully human in a sense. They had no right to property. They were not considered individuals. They were actually considered a part of their husband or their father or their brother. That's how they were known. In the first century world, testimony in court given by a woman was not admissible because it's a woman. How can you trust her? What does she know? And yet the message comes to a woman, to Elizabeth who bears John, to Mary who bears Jesus. Why? If you were in the first century mindset, you would say, does God want it to be more degrading? Harder to believe in? More countercultural, more counterintuitive? If you want to make up a story in the first century, you don't include women as the primary testimony, as the main giver of the story, as the receiver of God's gift. If you want people to believe it, you would never have included this. Pastor Tim Keller, talking about this very thing, said, God seems to be deliberately working with people the world despises. The very first witnesses to his nativity are people whom the world says you can't trust. And so if you were in the first century mindset, you would say, God, why? Why did this girl? Why? To show that his promises and his answers and his form of kingship differ from ours. You see, Jesus is the answer to the world's deepest needs not to what we think the world needs. In one of the passages that we read, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah the prophet looks for the day when the king would come, the Messiah would come and establish his reign. And then he gives the description of the kingdom. And here's the description. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together. The nursing child's going to play with a hole, over the hole of a, a cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the adder's den. And the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just as water covers the sea. This is the picture of the end, of what happens when God finally arrives. Wolf and lamb, child and cobra. God's presence covering everything. And you know, the picture of the end is, of course, evoking something earlier. It's evoking Eden, the Garden of Eden. The picture of the end in the prophets is always a reflection of the garden, of the beginning. 
And if you look throughout history, every culture in history has been trying to get back to or rebuild the garden. They don't know it. They don't realize this is what they're doing. But in the idea of building a better society, of building a utopia, of getting to that point where there is no crime or hunger or danger, you're trying to get to Eden. We've tried nearly every path you can. Cultures throughout history have tried the religious path where you establish laws, whether it's the Code of Hammurabi or Confucius, and it falls short. We've tried religious zealotry where you execute anybody who doesn't believe what you believe from the medieval church to ISIS today, and it doesn't work. You know, in the 17th and 18th century, philosophers developing the Enlightenment theory, guys like Hobbes and Locke, started developing this idea of development where we can move forward, and if we get far enough along and create cultures with politics that are, that are better, we can create a better world. And so the Federalist Papers and Jefferson, and they laid out a society like America with democracy. It's a great political system, but it doesn't feel like Eden to me yet. Marx came along and had his own version, and that fell by the historical wayside. Nietzsche was smart enough to recognize that without God, it's all going to fall apart anyhow. Without God, there's no moral center. And ultimately, you're just going to go towards radical individualism and do whatever you want, and here we are today. Radical, secular individualism. Without God, each one does what he wants, and maybe that's the way we're going to get to Eden. Or maybe we're just going to get more selfish. No culture has gone on the path far enough to restore Eden. To get to the place that God wants us to be. To be in that kingdom with his presence forever. So how do we return? How do we get to that place of experiencing God's presence? We have to go back to the garden and figure out the problem. Why were they expelled in the first place? There's a word I want us to to fixate on, and it's a word that came in the curse. It's the word enmity. Enmity, meaning hostility, hatred, enemies. Enmity is the problem in this world. Enmity is at the root of why Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. But the first enmity is that between God and humanity. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, went their own course, And we see the experience of that enmity in the very first thing that Adam and Eve do when God arrives. They hide themselves. They don't want to be near God because they see him as a threat and as an enemy and no longer as a friend. And that enmity with God that's created when Adam and Eve choose their own course creates all other enmities, all other divisions, it's the root of the division between man and creation so that, so that serpent and child can't play together. We're now at odds with creation. 
We're at odds with other people. We see it in the very first thing that happened. Adam and Eve are one flesh, but when they sin and fall apart from God, when the enmity with God comes in, it comes in with them as well. Adam, why did you do this? The woman, the woman says somebody else. They start blaming each other and they are driven apart. And you even see enmity within ourselves. Adam and Eve hide themselves. They cover their own nakedness because they are now ashamed of themselves. This is the psychological battle that many of us face each day. That struggle with who am I and hating ourselves, falling short of our standards, knowing we can't be who we want to be, wondering if I said the right thing at that conversation, whether I'm going to come across the right way. Those internal struggles are part of an enmity that has been there since creation when we broke it all, when we broke against God. We have looked for philosophical and political answers to the problems of the world. In Israel, they were looking for a king and vanquishing enemies and establishing a kingdom. But if there's any problem, anything that's broken that needs to be fixed, any enemy that needs to be conquered, it's you and and me. But the good news of the Bible, the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ is Jesus is the kind of king who conquers our true enemy because he allows himself to become enmity. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He, God, made him Christ to become sin who knew no sin so that we might be made right with God. Jesus is not just born, he is also crucified. And in being crucified, he bears the curse. He bears our sin and enmity. He is forsaken by God that we might be brought back into relationship with God, that we might return to Eden one day. He is the sort of king who conquers, but he conquers through surrender through death, through becoming a curse, through bearing everything we deserve. You know, the final song that I want to look at is Mary's song. We just sang it in that great song in Carol, and we're going to use it as what will form our prayers later on. It's the words from the Magnificat. The Magnificat is when the Spirit of God empowers Mary to just burst forth a prophetic word. And she seems to be the only one who gets who Jesus is in this whole story. Not the sort of king that they were looking for. She talks about the Lord is looking on the humble. He's bringing down the powerful. Those who are on thrones are being torn down. And the hungry and the poor are being lifted up and fed. And at the end of her song, she says this, he, God, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers Abraham and to his offspring forever. He has helped his servant Israel. That word helped 
means to support or give or also to lift up, to set up on something. It's synonymous with being saved, like you're drowning and you're helped. Our word in English falls a little bit short of that. The idea behind what she's saying is Israel has collapsed. They've completely fallen down and they need to be lifted up. They're drowning and need to be saved. Mary is saying in her song, to paraphrase preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, this baby that I'm about to have is God's final answer. Every promise to Abraham and to David and to Isaiah and the rest of the prophets, all of our longing and hope as humans, well, it's here. I'm about to give birth to it. the very blessings and mercy of God are going to be born and walk around. God will be with us in my baby. You know, to say that Jesus didn't fit Israel's expectations of promises fulfilled is an understatement. This sort of Messiah and King the way that Jesus comes and the claim that this is God and Savior, it begs us to answer, what are we going to do if this is the answer God gives us to all the world's problems? What are we going to do with this kind of King and Savior? Why does the Christmas season work on so many of us? You know, you have the lights inside your house as you're driving around town at night, the Christmas music that you're singing, hearing in the car radio, playing in your CD player if you're really old or on Spotify if you're slightly younger. The cookies, the food, the time with friends and family. Some of it is a desire for beauty and joy. It's a hope that one day everything will be like this season. It's a desire for more. Some people would say it's actually just a a longing to get back. It's a traditions, memories of when you were a kid. That's why you like the Christmas lights or certain carols. But as C.S. Lewis once pointed out, even our memories, our good memories, are actually hints of our desire for heaven. Because we don't remember things as they actually were. We remember the best of them. And in the memory of the best things of the past is actually a longing for them to never go away. It's a longing for heaven. Even in a lessons and carols service, as you go through stories and promises and songs and carols, God can touch our hearts, evoking something deeper, a longing that all of our longings would be fulfilled and the promise that they may be in Jesus. We may not see this clearly, but we are made for Eden. We're made for that time when all enmity will be gone and we are right with God. We are made to know God as well through that kid that's lying in a feeding trough with a teenage girl and a Middle Eastern peasant as his parents. We're made to know Jesus as our Savior and our King. Let's pray.
God, into a world that often is messed up, into our lives that never seem to go exactly how we want them to. I pray that we would see this Christmas in your son, Jesus, the answer that maybe we're not looking for, but the answer we need. The sort of Savior who is willing to become a curse for us, that we might be brought near to you. And so we offer ourselves to you this day. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand and sing with us? And rest ye merry gentlemen, that nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior.